as you heard earlier, uh, but in case you didn't, I'm Don George, one of the elders here. It is a treat to share God's word with you this morning. Um, let me pray before we open here. God, this is a hard word. I know the struggle that I had in hearing it and reading it myself over this past week, and the struggle that I had um, trying to draw out um, what you were saying to me and, and ultimately to your people. And so, God, I ask that this morning, as we dive into this word, that you would let your word, Lord, pass from, from ear into heart. Would you soften the hearts of those who hear it and let us receive it and let us respond in a manner worthy of your calling? Now, Father, I just ask you, speak. In Jesus' name, amen. I am being waved at, which means that I'm supposed to dismiss the children <laughs> ages five through fifth grade. You heard Michael say earlier that someday it'll be perfect. Today is not that day. <laughs> all right. So with all we've heard this morning regarding God's grace and cost, you might be wondering, what does it take to follow Jesus? Is it really as simple as asking Jesus into your heart and praying a prayer? The answer to that is yes and no. This has been my TED Talk. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to click like and subscribe on your way out. <laughs> now seriously though, what does it take to follow Jesus? What is required of us as believers? Or a better way to ask this is, what does Jesus require of those who would endeavor to be called his disciples? And it's my contention that the answer to this question is found in today's text. And I believe that that answer is this. Radical discipleship for Jesus requires radical commitment to Jesus. In our text today, we're going to meet three individuals who believed they were ready to follow Jesus. Two of the individuals initiate the dialogue by making a proclamation that they'll follow him, and the other, Jesus, invites to follow him. All three appear willing, if not eager, and all three make the decision to follow him. But Jesus, obviously not trained in the school of how to become a megachurch pastor in three years or less, does not welcome them to the team and instead responds in a manner which seemingly meant to dissuade them from doing so. 
Why would he do this? Earlier on in Jesus' ministry, John records in his gospel that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So when these men offered their service to Jesus, he cuts right to the chase and exposes their hearts. He challenges them to consider the costs associated with following him. He challenges them with the truth that radical discipleship for Jesus requires radical commitment to Jesus. Our first would-be disciple approaches Jesus along the road. He's seen the miracles, he's heard the teaching, and he's ready. He's made the decision to follow Jesus. And he sure seems committed from what we can tell. In verse 57, he tells Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Luke doesn't tell us in his gospel who this first person is, but Matthew does. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us that this first person is a scribe. Now, scribes were experts in the law, somewhat like Pharisees. So, this person would most certainly be considered a valuable addition to the group by worldly standards. I mean, can't you just imagine the prospect? Come, hear the testimony of the scribe. I mean, I picture Peter pulling Jesus aside at this moment and saying, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah, um... James and John, they're a little afraid to come talk to you after the whole fire from heaven episode. So they asked me to do it. So listen, I'm not sure if you know this, but Matthew, he's been taking notes this whole time. And he has something about this guy being a scribe. So we were thinking, after the whole eat my flesh, drink my blood thing, we have seen a significant drop in the number of followers. So this guy, this guy right here, he could be the jolt that this movement really needs right now. What do you think? I mean, we might laugh, but is it really that far-fetched for us? I mean, modern evangelical evangelism seems to be all about the moment. All you need to do to be saved is ask Jesus into your heart, pray this prayer, sign this card, and presto, eternal life. But the way that Jesus responds here suggests otherwise. Look at verse 58. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What Jesus tells this man is that if he truly wants to follow him, he needs to give up any expectations of comfort that he may have. He's teaching his disciples what they can expect. They can expect rejection. It just happened in the passage before this one in Samaria. It happened earlier in Luke 8.37, where the people of Gerasonus asked him to depart from them after he cast demons into pigs, which ran off a cliff. Speaking of cliffs, the people of the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth drove him out and sought to throw him off a cliff in Luke 4. This has been the standard expectation up to now, and it's only going to continue. Because as we know, 
from Luke 9:51, he has set his face to go to Jerusalem, where a cross awaits. The king who was born in a manger because there was no room at the inn will die beaten and bloodied, nailed to a cross. And he'll even be rejected by the Father, as evidenced by his last recorded words on the cross in Matthew and Mark, which were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Comfort is not to be expected as a true disciple of Christ. History tells us of the fate which awaits these disciples. Peter would be crucified. James, the brother of John, was killed by the sword, as recorded in Acts 12:2. John got off easy, I guess you could say, exiled to the island of Patmos. The apostle Paul, who himself took part in persecuting the early church, would later suffer beatings, stonings, imprisonment, and yes, death, for preaching the good news of God's salvation through Jesus Christ. What Jesus says to this scribe, and what still holds true today, is that if you're going to follow him, do not expect it to be easy. This is a far different message than what we hear in some evangelical circles today. Making a proclamation of faith Praying a prayer and signing a card does not automatically make you a disciple of Jesus. Becoming a follower does not equate to your best life now. In John 16, 33, Jesus tells his disciples, in the world, you will have tribulation. Not you might, but you will. And if we're teaching people that they can have their best life now, or if we leave out the costs, we are doing them a great disservice. If we're teaching people this, we're not leading them to Christ. We're leading them to an eternity separated from God. If we're teaching people this, we're ensuring that on the last day, on the day of judgment, they will hear, I never knew you. And this isn't the first time Jesus warns us about what awaits those who wish to follow him. Just a few verses ago, same chapter, starting in Luke 9.23, and he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus tells us that if we want to be his disciples, A cross awaits, and not a gold cross that we wear around our neck, but a cross of trials and sufferings because of his name. Now, I'm not saying that we should go out and seek persecution. To quote David Platt, that's not martyrdom, that's just plain dumb. That is not what I'm saying, and that's not what Jesus is saying either. What Jesus is saying is that if you want to follow him, if you want to be his disciple, you'll deny yourself. You'll put aside your desires, your expectations, and you'll focus on his instead. It's a heart issue. 
Remember what he says to the rich and you, rich young ruler in Matthew 22:37. We refer to it as the great commandment or Jesus refers to it as the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. The great commandment is a great commitment. Radical discipleship for Jesus requires radical commitment to Jesus. Well, unlike the eager scribe in verses 57 and 58 who volunteers his services, Jesus extends an invitation to the second would-be disciple. This man, perhaps as a result of what he just heard from Jesus in response to the first man, he isn't quite as eager. Look at verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, biblical scholars debate as to whether this man's father is literally dead. Some say that he's dead, some that he's dying, and yet some others say that death isn't even in the man's immediate future. Those in the last group argue that this man is employing a Middle Eastern saying, which basically means to stick around and wait for the inheritance. In other words, they claim that what the man is saying is, yet yeah, this all sounds great, Jesus, but let me go home, wait a bit, collect my inheritance, and then I'll come follow you. This way, if it doesn't work out, I have something to fall back on. Now, which of these is actually the case? I'm not sure. But I will say that I find it very difficult to believe that this man would be here if his father was lying dead at his house. According to custom, and I did verify this with Eric Steinhauser before I came in here and preached. <laughs> but yeah, according to custom, a Jewish funeral usually takes place, usually takes place, within one day following death. Then the next seven days, the mourners stay at home and receive guests who pray and reflect with them. So it seems a bit unreasonable to me that this guy has the body of his dead father at his house while he's off listening to a preacher man preach. Now obviously, Jesus is much more than some guy who waxes poetically on a Sunday morning. But does this man's response suggest that he thinks so? Regardless of what the actual case is regarding his father, the text is clear that there's some hesitation on the man's part to follow Jesus. And in Jesus' opinion, hesitation is not an option for his disciples. He responds in verse 60, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. As my daughter Michaela used to say, how rude. At this point, the disciples have got to be thinking, this movement is doomed. How are we ever going to get anybody to follow him if he doesn't even offer bereavement? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, Jesus is referring here to those who are spiritually dead, to those who aren't true followers of him. He says this in one breath, and then in the next, he instructs the man that as a disciple, his mission would be to proclaim that which brings life, the gospel. 
Jesus says, go and proclaim the very thing that has gotten me run out of almost every place that I've been. Jesus does not want second place in your heart. To follow Jesus is to prioritize Jesus. He comes before everything, and everything we do is done out of a sincere desire to please him. Now, I want to be clear, we don't do this out of a feeling of some obligation. This is not, Jesus scratches my back, so I'm going to scratch his. We do this out of love, a sincere, pure love for the God who so loved us that he sent his son. Jesus is saying that if one wishes to be his disciple, they'll prioritize him, even above family. And he'll say as much in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's radical. But radical discipleship for Jesus requires radical commitment to Jesus. Like the scribe, the third and final would-be disciple approaches Jesus about becoming a follower. He's perhaps seen the first two exchanges. He's been taking notes and decides that he's still going to go for it. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. You heard Michael read the account of Elisha's calling in our call to worship this morning. In it, you heard how when Elijah called him to service, Elisha requested and was granted to go back and kiss his family. So surely the rabbi is familiar with this passage, and surely the rabbi will grant this request. But this is someone greater than Elijah who's here. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I am very meticulous when it comes to mowing a lawn. In fact, my son Cody used to refer to me as a lawn Nazi. When I cut the grass, there must be perfectly straight, perfectly parallel, evenly spaced lines. Unlike when Cody cuts the grass. But is that really too much to ask? I mean, <laughs> so in order to achieve my superior level of lawn mowing, outside of using a chalk line, which I have considered, <laughs> you need to keep your eyes forward, fixed on the path, and ultimately on the destination. If you take your eyes off, even for a split second, you'll veer off course and your path will become crooked, not straight lines. And the path of following Jesus is no different. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. When we become a disciple of Jesus, our aim is to please Jesus. When we make a decision to follow Christ, 
we make a commitment to follow Christ. I alluded to this earlier, but take a look at verse 51 again. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew and he went. Because that was the Father's will. As we heard from Pastor Josh's message a couple weeks ago in John 6, 38, where Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I was so thankful to hear from some of you this week in response to the weekly gather that was sent out. I was encouraged to hear of the conviction that came as a result of reading this week's text and considering the difference between a decision and a commitment. And I'd like to share a couple of those with you. Sue McCandless reached out to Alyssa and shared an article that highlights the difference between a decision and a commitment. That article said, there is a difference between deciding to lose weight and committing to lose weight. There's a difference between deciding to get married and committing to a successful marriage. There's a difference between deciding on a new job and committing to being a successful teammate. When you're making a decision, usually you are deciding about your level of commitment too, even if subconsciously. I'm challenging you to think about the commitment part consciously. In response to the article and this week's passage, Sue wrote, I empathize with the people in the story and myself. But at the end of the day, those responses are more often than not just an excuse. The Lord is constantly having me consider my level of commitment to him. Regrettably, I fall short, as do many believers. Yet, we press on, and he continues to accept my meager offerings, all the while calling me to deepen my level of commitment. Amen, Sue. Sue, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for your vulnerability and your willingness to share your weakness. You are not alone, sister. Praise God that his power is made perfect in our weakness. And yesterday, I got this text from Jason Ludwig, AKA just a carpenter. <laughs> At elder meetings, Jason is kind enough to tip us off when we should pay close attention by starting out with, I'm just a carpenter, but I want to start a Twitter hashtag, hashtag just a carpenter. It can be used whenever something incredibly profound is said. We're on to you, Jason. But Jason shared this. A question I ask believers is, why do you need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit if you aren't doing anything challenging, risky, or radical for Christ? All you really need is just a Duncan's dark roast to keep up this lifestyle. <laughs> just a carpenter. The plans he has for us may be hard, so our commitment must be sincere. We have to accept the cross along with the crown. Sue and Jason get it. Let's talk about someone else who got it. 
Many of you here today know Nick Clark. And for those who don't, Nick dedicated his life to serving Christ by counseling others through some of their darkest times. Some of those people are in attendance today, including one of my dearest, most precious friends, Pastor Pat, who wrote this of Nick. He was the kind of friend that doesn't come around often. The kind you just enjoy being around, no matter what you're doing. The kind you never want to let go. And Nick was that kind of friend to so many others. And I know that the reason he was that kind of friend is because he sought not only to follow, but to be like the best friend he knew, Jesus Christ. And as he followed and imitated Jesus, he became not just a pastor to his own congregation, but also to members of the congregations of other pastors and to the pastors themselves, pastors like me. Continuing on, Pat writes, Nick died on Wednesday like he lived, seeking to love others selflessly in a world where we are tempted to do anything but that. He was one week away from open heart surgery to replace a bad valve in his heart. He knew the limitations on his activities all too well. He and his family were enjoying a day at the beach, making memories as they prepared for this surgery. He was out in the water playing with his kids and knew he needed to slow down, so he started back to shore. But then he saw a young girl in distress struggling in the water. And Nick did what Nick always did when people needed help. He helped. And she lived, and he collapsed. And despite the best efforts of nurses and a doctor on the scene, EMTs, and then the hospital staff, he could not be resuscitated. And so as we pleaded and prayed and cried, he died. here's the thing. What Nick knew, what his wife Kate knows, certainly what Pat knows, and what all disciples of Christ know, is that according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And what Nick believed was the same thing Paul believed as he wrote in Philippians 1.21, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. In one moment, Nick was selflessly giving of himself, saving a young girl from drowning. In the next moment, he was in the presence of his best friend, the one who saved him from an eternal death, Jesus Christ. If you're here today as a non-Christian, thank you for joining us. After hearing a message like this, you might be thinking, there's no way that God would ever let me be a Christian. You might be saying to yourself, I am way too messed up for God to call me his own. Please let me encourage you today by sharing with you 
so am I. Would you believe me if I told you that every true disciple of Jesus would tell you the same? That's what makes this such good news. We don't deserve this. Not one of us. And the Bible tells us as much. It says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the Bible also says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. This gift is available to you as well. If you're willing to give your heart to God, if you're willing to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him. If you're interested, if you have questions, please come talk to one of us after the service. We would love to answer any of those questions you might have. Friends, I know that this has been a hard word to hear today. Trust me when I tell you it was a hard word to write. Before Steve and the praise team come up to lead us in our last song, I'd like to ask if we could just take a moment and reflect on some of the things we've heard this week. Let's contemplate the exchanges we've seen in the text and ask ourselves a question that we can carry into the work week. And here it is. If you were to approach Jesus and declare, I will follow you, what might Jesus' response be to you? What obstacles do you have that prevent you from fully committing to him? Would you ask him to reveal those to you so that you can give him the more fully complete commitment that he deserves? Thank you all.